All right, we've come now to the second last teaching on uh, last things. Today we're looking at the final judgment and eternal punishment. Next week, Lord willing, will be the new heavens and new earth. Um, I'm following Wayne Grudem's analysis of this from his systematic theology. It was very helpful, and I've added my own stuff in here as well. But we have, first of all, the fact of the final judgment, scriptural evidence for a final judgment. Scripture frequently affirms that a fact that there will be a great final judgment of believers and unbelievers. We will stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ in our resurrected bodies and hear uh, his proclamation of our eternal destiny. That's going to happen to every single last person who's ever lived. The final judgment, if you turn in Revelation 20, 11 to 15, is vividly portrayed in John's vision. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Many other passages, of course, in the Bible teach on the final judgment. Paul tells the Greek philosophers in Athens that God now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all men by raising him from the dead. Acts 17, 30-31. Similarly, Paul talks about, quote, the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, Romans 2, 5. Other passages speak of a coming day of judgment, Matthew 10, 15, 11, 22, 24, 12, 36, 25, 31-46, 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Hebrews 6, 2, 2 Peter 2, 4, Jude 6. I'm just saying that so it's on the record. You can look it up. And this final judgment, obviously, is the combination of many precursors in which God's God rewarded righteousness or punished unrighteousness throughout human history. Uh, While he brought blessing and deliverance from danger to those who were faithful to him, including men like Abel, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and the faithful among the, the people of Israel, he also, from time to time, brought judgment upon those who persisted in disobedience and unbelief. His judgments included the flood. Can you think of some more? Yes? Yep. Another Genesis one? Judgment for, for judgment. yeah. Egypt. Oh yeah, of course. In Genesis, though. Oh. got uh, Tower of Babel. That's what I was looking oh, for. Of yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And then there's there's continuing judgment throughout history on individuals. Romans one eighteen. We're gonna look at that in a second. And also on nations. Isaiah thirteen uh, to twenty three. Who persist in sin. Uh, Romans 1.18, just an interesting text. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may, may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. So, so yes, the Bible undoubtedly is it's actually, it is stating, ultimately we're going to see God's reaction to the sin of his idolatrous image bearers on Judgment Day. That is for certain, ultimately. Um, it's going to end up in hell uh, uh, but we see in verse 18 of Romans 1 that there is also, there's a preparatory, anticipatory, temporal revelation of God's wrath being revealed from heaven right now, presently, against the godlessness and wickedness of all humanity. So instead of, that means instead of rebuking 
people in sort of remedial corrective judgment, such as when God beat idolatry out of Israel um, during their 70-year Babylonian captivity or by sending another flood, like in the days of Noah. Uh, God's wrath is presently being revealed from heaven against sin uh, by giving human beings over to their sinful desires, to shameful lusts, 126, a depraved mind, verse 28. Moreover, in the unseen realm, God brought judgment on angels who sinned. 2 Peter 2.4. The Apostle Peter also reminds us that God's judgments have been carried out periodically and with certainty. And this reminds us that a final judgment is yet to come. So think of 2 Peter 2.9-10. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and to keep the unrighteousness, the unrighteous rather, under punishment until the day of judgment. See, keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Questions about that? Pretty straightforward. The time of the final judgment, just following along in your PDF, the final judgment, now here we go. (laughs) This is the first time you've ever heard me say this. The final judgment will occur after the millennium and the battle that occurs at the end of it. What do you think of that? John pictures the millennial kingdom and the removal of Satan from influence on the earth in Revelation 21 to 6, and then then says that when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be loosed from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations to gather them for battle. So 29 to 10. They march across the breadth of the earth and surround the camp of God's people, the city he loves, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So after God decisively wins that final battle, John tells us that judgment will follow. That's when the great white throne of judgment is set up and Jesus is sitting upon it in verse 11. The nature of the final judgment. Jesus will be the one to judge. It's, it's, very, it's very important to know that. Jesus will be the final judge. It's not God the Father. It's not God the Holy Spirit. It's not the whole Trinity working together. It's actually Jesus Christ will be our judge. Paul speaks in 2 Timothy 4.1, Jesus Christ who is to judge the living and the dead. Peter says that Jesus Christ is the one ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Acts 10.42. This right to act as judge over the whole universe is something that the Father has given to the Son. It's an office that he's given to him, an entrustment of authority. The Father has given him authority to execute judgment because, John 5.26-27, he is the Son of Man. Just turn there quickly. We looked at this when we went through John's Gospel, but I just want to do it one more time. It's important. John 5, 27. And he, the Father, has given him, the Son, so the Father has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. And my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. And Jesus here obviously is talking about uh, the resurrection and the final judgment. Jesus has been given authority to judge, not independently of God, right? He, he, I judge only as I hear, but as the Son of Man. He judges in that capacity as the Son of Man. What does that mean? Well, the title Son of Man in verse 27 is applied to Jesus in many places throughout the Gospels. 
And in every single place, in every single place except for this one right here, the definite article is used. Our NIV Church Bible translations say, The Son of Man. What does uh, ESV say? You guys have that? The Son of Man. In the Greek, the construction is anarthrous. There's no article, which can mean a number of things in Greek. It doesn't, that doesn't of itself make it indefinite, a son of man. Uh, but it's precisely the same Greek construction we see in Daniel 7. It's, it's very deliberate. Daniel 7, 13 to 14. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That means Jesus is the apocalyptic son of man who receives from the ancient of days, from God himself, the prerogatives of deity and a kingdom that entails total dominion. But at the same time, he belongs to humanity, right? And he walks where human beings have walked. And it's, it's the combination of both these features which makes Jesus uniquely qualified to be our judge. It's the combination of both these features which make it totally appropriate he judges us, right? Jesus judges, judges us not only with the, uh, the omniscience of deity, but also human experience. Both those things in one person. If, it can't be said of God the Father that he entered into our experience as human beings. But praise be to God, we can say that about the Son. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. And he's going to be our judge. On the last day, the dead will be in their graves, and perhaps Jesus won't return for 5,000 years, which means our corpses will have long since turned to dust. However, on the last day, all of us are going to hear the voice of the Son of Man. Come forth, Socrates. Come forth, Hitler. Come forth, Armando. Come forth, Quinn. Come forth, Phoebe. And then we all will be standing before Jesus Christ, and we will actually see his wounds, still visible, wounds opened on Calvary's hill for the salvation of sinners. And then Jesus, the eternal Son, will open his glorified human mouth, and he will pronounce judgment upon each of us. Either eternal life, either it's going to be, come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Can you imagine hearing those words? Or eternal condemnation. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Which then leads to our second point. Unbelievers will be judged. And it's clear that all unbelievers will stand before Christ for judgment because this judgment includes Revelation 20:12, the dead, great and small. And Paul says in Romans 2, 5-7, on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, he will render to every man according to his works. For those who are factious and do not obey the truth, but obey wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. Factious. There's an ESV word for you right there. This judgment of unbelievers will be, include degrees of punishment. This is. I want to kind of. I'm going to spend some time on this. All right. Uh, for we read that the dead are, are judged by what they have done. Revelation twenty twelve and thirteen. And this judgment is according to what people. Uh, because of that, it must therefore involve an evaluation of the works that people have done. Similarly, Jesus says in Luke twelve forty seven to forty eight, and that servant who knew his master's will 
but did not make ready or act according to his will shall receive a severe beating with many stripes, right? But he who did not know and did what deserved a beating, so there's still punishment coming, shall receive a light beating, fewer stripes. You know, there's, there's degrees of punishment. It's not just an indiscriminate punishment. Hitler, you're there exactly as the, you know, the 13-year-old girl. You know, it's like, no, there's, there's degrees of this. Um, when Jesus says to the cities of Chorazan and Bethsaida, it shall be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Right? You're seeing automatically, well, there's, there's, there's degrees of punishment there, that means. Or when he says to the scribes, he says that the scribes will receive the greater condemnation, Luke 20, 47. It implies degrees of punishment on the last day. In fact, every wrong deed will be remembered and taken into account in that punishment as it's meted out on that last day. Matthew twelve thirty six. On the day of judgment, men will render account for every careless word they utter. Every word spoken, every deed done will be brought into the light and receive judgment. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil, Ecclesiastes 12, 14. That's the text we're looking at today in our sermon. As these verses indicate, on the day of judgment, the secrets of people's hearts will be revealed. They're going to be made public. Paul speaks of this day when God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, Romans 2, 16. Or Luke 12, 2 to 3. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. Questions about that? Yeah? Like I conceptually can kind of understand that, but I just I guess more not so much I guess scripturally, but just more practically, it's kind of like degrees of hell, degrees of pleasure in heaven, heaven, kind of like how do you get more perfect and how do you if you're already in hell, like in one sense, what difference does it make if you're separated from God for all eternity, whether it's more bearable or not, kind of thing, versus in heaven, if you're already present with the Lord, how can it be more perfect, kind of thing? The one with heaven, the degrees of felicity in heaven, we'll talk about that in a minute, okay? But when it comes to punishments in hell, um, it's eternal conscious torment. So, to my thinking, it has to be then that the torment is increased. Um, it's, it's more, there's more torment for a Hitler than for somebody else. It's not just it's not just the uh, the pure separation from God is the, the hell that you're experiencing, but it's actually there's it's eternal and it's conscious and there is actually physical torment going on as well too. So I don't know I don't the Bible doesn't give a lot of descriptions on that, but you can just be certain of it. It's like it's, it which it also brings there's actually real justice in the world, right? It's not just you somebody's done something horrendous and they've been really evil and wicked in life, Stalin, Hitler. Oh, there's going to be real justice that's actually proportional for all of eternity. That is, they keep on sinning too, I, I believe, in the afterlife. There's still that rebellion going on. And, oh, then here's, here's this person who, you know, died at the age of 13 uh, from the jungle, never heard about Jesus Christ, and it's like, oh, they get the same punishment as Hitler. That's, that's not proportional. So I, I'm going to leave it in God's hands. I, don't, I can't describe it to you. I don't know. But for the hell part, I would just say it'd be, it would be the torment is, is worse. We'll talk about the joy of heaven and the reward of heaven, though, in a minute. Believers will be judged. In writing to Christians, Paul says, We shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. Each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Romans 14.10 and verse 12. He also tells the Corinthians, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, 
that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. That's 2 Corinthians 5.10. He's speaking of Christians there. In addition, the picture of the final judgment in Matthew 25, 31-46, includes Christ separating the sheep from the goats and then rewarding those who have received his blessing. It's important to realize that this judgment of believers will be a judgment to evaluate and bestow various degrees of reward. Okay, more on that in a second. But the fact that we will face such a judgment should never cause believers to fear that we're going to be eternally condemned. It's like, oh, what's, what's, the, final, what's the final outcome here? Oh, okay, I was saved. Oh, it's like, it's, that's not the picture that's being presented. Uh, Jesus, Jesus says in John 5.24, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment. For he has passed from death to life. But just think of all the believers who have died on their deathbeds. Like, I'm coming, Lord Jesus, thank you. You receive my spirit. Ah, and then immediately, okay, then judgment happens. You know, depending on your millennium views and all that kind of stuff. But it's not like, what, what, what was happening? What was happening in the interim? Oh, okay, I am saved. Actually, I'm legitimately saved now. It's like, that's not the way judgment works. Here, judgment must be understood in the sense of eternal condemnation and death. In John 5, 24, right? He does not come into judgment since it's contrasted with passing from death into life. At the final day of judgment, more than any other time, it is of the utmost importance that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1. Thus, the day of judgment can be portrayed as one in which believers are rewarded. You can think of the judgment day as being like that. It's the day I enter into my reward. Well done, good and faithful servant. You know, that's, that, and that's also the, the vindication of God, I think, too, before all the, before all the universe. Uh, that these people are my people. My, I have been a holy, just, righteous God. I've punished my son in their place. My justice stands. God is vindicated. We come into our reward. I think that's how we could, as Christians, look at Judgment Day. Revelation eleven eighteen. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Scripture also teaches that there will be degrees of reward for believers. Armando, could you close that back door? Just, mm. Paul says of Christians that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad, 2 Corinthians 5.10, implying degrees of reward for what's done in this life. Likewise, in the parable of the, the minas, those who have the ten minas more were told, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the one whose mina had been uh, five minas, which is all, you have authority over five cities. Just like, again, it's very, very hard to conceptualize what reward looks like in the new heavens and new earth. You know, it's not going to be, oh, here's, here's cash, here's bars of gold. I mean, it's not going to be that kind of stuff. You, you have this, this, it's hinted at in Scripture, Jesus speaking of this, 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 this unmediated worship of God just basking in his glory, just right there in his presence, you know. Like, you, there's, there, there's work, you know, but there's no fatigue, that, that, that kind of thing. So, you know, I can't describe it, I, I have no idea, but there's definitely degrees of reward. And uh, I'm going to just kind of go through this quickly, but there was a... The, our... our Happiness, our contentment, our joy, our fulfillment, and the new heavens and new earth is going to be complete. Um, if somebody, so, somebody asked, I think it was Whitfield, um, do you think so-and-so will be in heaven? Like kind of one of his like, theological enemies on earth. They're both evangelical, but he said, oh, he's going to be, you know, do you think you'll see him in heaven? He goes, oh, no, he'll be so close to the throne of God, I won't be able to see him. 
because he's putting himself way back there. And, and we can kind of look at reward now and say, okay, Angela is going to have, she's going to outstrip me in the new heavens, new earth. She's going to have these huge mansions. She's going to be in charge of 10 cities. I'm in charge of five cities. That's going to kind of suck, but you know, I'm in heaven, so it'll be okay. And now it's actually, we're going to be so delighted that God's grace was poured out upon our sister and she gets to be in charge of 10 cities. And actually you're going to be so happy for that other person. Our, our, you see, like our heart changes. And now on earth, if you have 10 houses and I have five, I'm like, oh, I hate you. <laughs> but in the heavens of the earth, it'll be completely different. We'll actually be joyful for our other, our brother or sister's happiness. They're, they, look at God's grace upon Angela that actually the sinner has been saved and she's in charge of 10 cities. You know, it's like amazing. Can you imagine? Like I, my heart doesn't work that way now, but that's how our heart will be working in the heavens and the earth. So there won't be any envy. There won't be any jealousy or covetousness by what other people have or somebody's closer to the throne of God. What do you think? Do you like talk about reward? So degrees of punishment, I, I don't know how that will be, but it will be. But degrees of reward. Do you want to talk about that a bit? Or what are you thinking? I just nail it perfectly. Or <laughs> I don't know. You're working for rewards, right? Yeah, yeah. You're being you're being an obedient Christian so that you will receive reward. Uh, Is that mercenary? No, it's not mercenary. I don't think it's mercenary. I think it's uh, something that I can never spend all the time like, thinking about. Uh, I don't know, but it makes it make sense. I think it makes sense. I think it makes sense too. I just yeah, I kind of wonder how much. Okay, yes, we agree. How much time do we actually spend thinking about it? Practically, what is is going to make me work harder? Maybe, maybe not. Probably not. Should it? I don't know. And I think that you know, there's just something eternal life. This is the, the big reward. Yes. Big, everything, <laughs> everything else is like eternal top. Like, yeah. oh, this is great. <laughs> I'm in charge of five, ten cities. That's good. But just, just being able to be here is actually a big reward. Yeah. The Bible says that you know, all the worst place. Yeah. One thing it can do is it can cause us to help and encourage one another that we may all increase our heavenly reward. Actually, to think about that on a conscious level. Um, for God has an infinite, an infinite capacity to bring blessing to us all, and we are all members of one another. So, actually, to help each other get those rewards, and actually to remind each other to think about that. Um, he would, we would more eagerly heed the admonition of the author of Hebrews. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. All the more as you see the day dawning near. Right? This is a good way of doing it. Rewards. It's coming. Be, be an obedient Christian. You know, this is a... You know, we got to think about the afterlife. Moreover, in our own lives, a heartfelt seeking of future heavenly reward would motivate us to work wholeheartedly for the Lord and, and whatever task He calls us to. Uh, whether great or small, paid or unpaid... As you're setting up chairs today, it's a pretty thankless task on one level, but it's also, you'll, you'll receive a reward for that, Armando, as you're coming here with the right, I mean, you can, you can the whole thing can be voided, though, too. You come here with the wrong attitude, and, and this complaint, and you're yelling at your wife and kid, <laughs> you know, or it's like, I've come here to serve, I've got a good attitude, I want, I'm going to, you know, there's a reward for that. So, questions, anything about before we move on? Just, just kind of on that, I mean, like, yeah, conceptually agree, but if I were to say, hey, John, you know, prepared so hard for this, think of how great your reward is, versus, wow, look how much more glory you're bringing to Christ, like, not to sound holier than now in one sense, but I can motivate, like, motivate brothers and sisters with, think of Christ. I think, I, I think Lord. it should be both. I think you see both in scripture. I wouldn't just have one or the other. I think you should do both. It, it, Jesus speaks often of receiving that reward, and it should be motivating. It's not a mercenary thing. It's a, it's a gracious thing. It's a good thing. It's there for a reason, I think.
angels will be judged. Peter says that the rebellious angels have been committed to pits of darkness to be kept until judgment, 2 Peter 2.4. And Jude says that rebellious angels have been kept by God until the judgment of the great day, Jude 6. And then 1 Corinthians 6.3, Paul says, Do you not know that we are to judge angels? This means that at least the rebellious angels or demons will be subject to judgment on the last day as well. Scripture does not clearly indicate whether righteous angels will undergo this kind of evaluation for their service as well. Don't know. Interesting, though. Angels are going to be judged. Demons, fallen angels. Number five, or it's just a dot, I think, in your thing, but we will help in the work of judgment. That's an interesting thing. It's rather an amazing aspect of New Testament teaching that believers will take part in the process of judgment. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6, 2-3, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are, do you not know that uh, we are to judge angels? How much more matters pertaining to this life? It might be argued that this simply means they're going to be watching uh, the declaration of judgment by Jesus Christ and approving it. Yes, that was the bad angel. He was bad, and I approve that. But it doesn't fit the context, if that's actually all it was. He, Paul's encouraging the Corinthians to settle legal disputes amongst themselves rather than take it to the, the court in front of unbelievers. Uh, in this very context, he says in, in 1 Corinthians 6, 5-6, to I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers. But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. So this kind of judgment he's speaking of involves careful evaluation and involves wise discernment. And this implies that such careful evaluation and discernment will be exercised by us in judging angels. That's the context. And in judging the world on the final day. That's also in the context. This is similar to the teaching of Revelation 24, where John says, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. I've argued before, these are Christians, everyone thinks that, but and the, the fact that they're mentioned in the plural, the, despite your eschatology or whatever, but they're in the plural indicates that Christ does not reserve every aspect of the process of judging for himself alone. Um, Jesus tells his 12 disciples that they will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel, Matthew 12, or 19, 28. This accords with the fact that throughout the history of redemption, God has, from time to time, given the right to exercise judgment into the hands of human authorities. So Moses and the elders who assisted him, uh, the judges of Israel who were raised up during the period of the judges, the wise kings like David, Solomon, uh, the civil government of many nations, right? Romans uh, 13, and then the church, right? With relation to the keys, binding and loosing, we're exercising judgment. Questions about that? The necessity of final judgment. Since when believers die, they pass immediately into the presence of God. And when unbelievers die, they pass into a state of separation from God and the endurance of punishment. I would, I would argue that. I believe that. We may wonder why God has a time of final judgment established at all. I mean, it's already kind of happened, right? Um, Burkhoff wisely points out that the final judgment is not for the purpose of letting God find out the condition of our hearts or the pattern of conduct of our lives. For he already knows that in every single detail. Burkhoff says this about the final judgment. It will serve the purpose, rather, of displaying before all rational creatures 
the declarative glory of God in a formal forensic act which magnifies, on the one hand, his holiness and righteousness, and on the other hand, his grace and mercy. Moreover, it should be borne in mind that the judgment at the last day will differ from that of the death of each individual in more than one respect. It will not be, a, it will not be secret, but public. It will not pertain to the soul only, but also to the body. It will not have reference to a single individual, but to all men. The justice of God in the final judgment. Scripture clearly affirms that God is entirely, entirely just in his judgment, and no one will be able to complain against him on that last day. 1 Peter 1.17, God is the one who judges each one impartially according to his deeds. God shows no partiality, Romans 2.11. For this reason, on the last day, every mouth will be stopped and the whole world will be held accountable to God, Romans 3.19, with no one being able to complain that God has treated them unfairly. Think about that. Stalin, Hitler, whoever, your next door neighbor, no one's going to be able to say, I've been treated unfairly here. There's been a miscarriage of justice. Not every single person will say, this is just. Now there could be just obviously seething hate and rebellion against God and continued wickedness in hell then. But actually, no, this actually is just. I'm acknowledging that. In fact, one of the great blessings of the final judgment will be that saints and angels will see demonstrated in millions of lives the absolutely pure justice of God. And this will also be a source of praise for all eternity. Uh, At the time of the judgment of wicked Babylon, there was great praise in heaven. For John says, Revelation 19, 1 to 2, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. Again, we're going to talk about this later on, but we, don't, we need to be very careful about kind of <laughs> thinking that way ourselves right now, I think, in this fallen world, our fallen minds, as you're seeing, you know, okay, we don't know anybody's final state for sure when they die, um, but, but you're actually you're seeing here the saints in heaven saying, here's... Babylon falling, judgment. Yes, hallelujah, God is awesome. You know, that's, uh, that's the perspective I think we're going to have on that final day. Our, our hearts will be changed. We'll see things from God's perspective. Moral application of the final judgment. What are we doing for time here? What time is it? 10.01. Um, the doctrine of the final judgment has several positive moral influences in our lives. Number one, the doctrine of final judgment satisfies our inward sense of a need for justice in this world. I think this is very important. The fact that there will be a final judgment assures us that ultimately God's universe is fair. God is in control and he keeps accurate records and he renders just judgment. I don't know how people who are atheists get through life. I mean, that's where they're all saying futility, meaninglessness, right? It's like, yeah, Stalin got away with it. Hitler got away with it. You know, whatever. My, whatever. You can just think of it. I'm using those as extreme examples. When Paul tells slaves to be submissive to their masters, he reassures them, he reassures them this in Colossians 3.25. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Right? Your whole life is a slave. Uh, with an unjust master, he says that to them. When the picture of final judgment mentions the fact that 
The books were open, Revelation 20.12. It reminds us, whether the books are literal or symbolic, that a permanent and accurate record of all of our deeds has been kept by God. And ultimately, all accounts will be settled. It's all going to be made right. It also enables us to freely forgive others, this doctrine of the final judgment. We realize that it's not up to us to take revenge on others who have wronged us, or even to want to do so, because God has reserved that right for himself. Um, Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In this way, whenever we have been wronged, we can give it into God's hands and desire... uh, We can give into God's hands any desire to harm or repay the person who wronged us. We know that ultimately it's in God's hands. He's in control. He'll be just. He'll be fair. Um, either it's going to be, turn out that that person's sins were paid for on the cross by Jesus Christ, um, or it will be paid in the final judgment for those who don't trust in Christ for their salvation. But we're never actually secretly hoping, I hope, I hope it's actually hell and not Jesus Christ who died for their sins. Um, but in either case, we can give the situation to God's hands, pray that the wrongdoer will trust Christ, love your enemies, and that we're going to receive salvation and, uh, and receive that forgiveness. This thought should keep us from harboring bitterness or resentment in our hearts for injustices that we've suffered that, we, uh, that have not been made right in this world. God is just, and we can leave these situations in his hands, knowing that he will someday right all wrongs and give absolutely fair rewards and fair punishment. In this way, we're to follow the example of Christ. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but he trusted to him who judges justly. 1 Peter 2.22-23 The doctrine of the final judgment provides a motive for righteous living. Um, I'm going to... Very quickly. For believers, the final judgment is an incentive to faithfulness and good works. Not as a means of earning forgiveness for sins, but as a means of gaining greater eternal reward. This is a healthy and good motive for us. Jesus tells us, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, Matthew 6, 20. For unbelievers, the doctrine of final judgment still provides some moral restraint in their lives. If they believe in that, if there's an accounting at the end, it'll have some influence on their behavior in the here and now. Um, the doctrine of final judgment provides a great motive for evangelism as well, right? I mean, this, this is... <laughs> Nothing should be causing... Like there's, there's, that, there's, there's faithfulness to God, right? We want to be doing what he says. We need to be proclaiming the gospel. But out of this comes a real love for the lost and an awareness that hell is eternal, conscious torment. And I've been given this wonderful gift of eternal life. I have the knowledge of the gospel. I want to proclaim this to the lost. This, and judgment day is coming and hell is real. That needs to be pushing us, maybe when we're scared, timid, Oh, it's going to be socially awkward if I tell my boss this kind of stuff. It's like, this can be, get in there. Tell them. Hell is coming. Final judgment is coming. Turn, turn. Why will you die? O house of Israel. Ezekiel 33, 11. Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. All these kinds of things. Like, judgment's coming. It, should, it needs to affect us. Second Peter 3, 9. God is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We're going to close with hell. This is an important doctrine, obviously, in this, in this whole looking at judgment. Um, make sure you have your PDF open at some point here. 
Um, it's appropriate that we discuss this doctrine in connection with final judgment. We may define hell as follows. Hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment or torment for the wicked. Scripture teaches in several places that there is such a place. Um, at the end of the parable of the talents, the master says, cast a worthless servant into the outer darkness. There men will weep and gnash their teeth, Matthew twenty-five thirty. This is one among several indications that there will be consciousness of punishment after the final judgment. I'm going to keep coming back to that, conscious eternal torment. Um, similarly, at the judgment, the king will say to some, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25, 41. And Jesus says to those thus condemned that they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. In this text, the parallel between eternal life and eternal punishment indicates that both states will be without end. Jesus refers to hell as the unquenchable fire, Mark 9, 43, and says that hell is a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, Mark 9, 48. The story of the rich man and Lazarus also indicates a horrible consciousness of punishment. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy upon me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. And then he begs Abraham to send Lazarus to his father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Luke sixteen twenty-eight. When we turn to Revelation, the descriptions of this eternal punishment are also very explicit. Um, you think of, and, there's, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Uh, and this passage very clearly affirms the idea of eternal conscious punishment of unbelievers. Um, with respect to the judgment on the wicked, the city of Babylon, they all say, Hallelujah, the smoke of her goes up forever and ever. It's eternal. After the final rebellion of Satan is crushed, we read the devil who has deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's eternal. This passage is also significant in connection with Matthew 25, 41, in which unbelievers are sent into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Beloved, these verses should make us realize the immensity of the evil found in sin and rebellion against God and the magnitude of the holiness and the justice of God that calls forth this kind of punishment. But think about it. The only thing that kind of that counteracts this kind of punishment is God incarnate dying on a cross, bearing the wrath of God in our place. Those are the, those are the extremes. I mean, hell is a grisly topic. It's, it's hard to conceive. It's, it's impossible for me to conceive of it. It's, you know, but and I, I, I'm not trying to be flippant, but I've always thought, like, even someone like Hitler, okay, if I were God, I'd say... 50 trillion years, Hitler. Just the worst kind of torment. 50 trillion years. And then that's enough. No. It, does, it never stops. It never stops. And Hitler only keeps on sinning and sinning and sinning. And there's eternal punishment. I can't wrap my mind around. I know it's true. But if I were God, 50 trillion years and you're, you're annihilated. That's okay. We're going to look at that in just one second. However, this idea of eternal conscious punishment of unbelievers has been denied recently, even by some evangelical theologians. It has previously been denied by the Seventh-day Adventist Church and by those various individuals and by various individuals throughout church history. 
Those who deny eternal conscious punishment often advocate annihilationism. That's what it's called. A teaching that after the wicked have suffered the penalty of God's wrath for a time, God will annihilate them so that they no longer exist. Many who believe in annihilationism also hold to the reality uh, of final judgment and punishment for sin. But they argue that after sinners have suffered for a certain period of time, bearing the wrath of God against their sins, they'll just finally cease to exist. Uh, The punishment will therefore be conscious, but it won't be eternal. So I'm saying eternal conscious torment. They're saying torment that is conscious. That's all they're saying. Um, In the PDF, I sent you out a huge chapter from Don Carson's excellent book on on the gagging of God. Christianity confronts pluralism. Um, You're not going to read the whole thing now. I'm just going to quote some spots from it. But I would advise you, take that home and read it. It's an excellent chapter if you're interested in this subject particularly on banishing the lake of fire from Christian doctrine. Um, He writes this. Many annihilationists object to the term annihilation, holding that it puts the emphasis on the wrong place and betrays a platonic worldview. They are annihilationists in the sense, they would argue, that they hold that there is finally a cessation of existence, but they are uncomfortable with the term because it sounds to them as if God is destroying what would otherwise have endured forever. And this they deny. They prefer an expression such as conditional immortality, i.e. men and women are not naturally or constitutionally immortal, but become immortal under certain conditions. If they fail to meet these conditions, then inevitably their mortality prevails, and they are finally and completely destroyed. For our purposes, we shall not usually distinguish between annihilationism and destruction that flows from conditional immortality, for the two conditions are alike, in that they both deny that hell is a place of everlasting conscious punishment. Um, recent writers who have defended conditional immortality do not invariably do so for the same reasons or with the same degree of certainty, but their principal arguments may be fairly summarized as follows. And I can just maybe read these two. We're kind of running out of time, but you can read through that Carson article and you'll refute every one of them. I'll get to some of them, but not all of them. So here's some reasons that they would say, no, 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 it's, it's conditional immortality. Number one, a number of biblical passages speak of the destruction of the wicked. Uh, fair exegesis of the words involved suggests total destruction, they would argue, i.e. cessation of existence. You're destroyed. So Philippians 3.19, 1 Thessalonians 5.3, 2 Thessalonians 1.9, 2 Peter 3.7. Even the imagery of fire, number two, suggests that which devours and utterly destroys. In other words, the focus of fire is not the pain that, causes, that it causes, which we might think that, right? It's the pain. You're in fire. No, no, no. It's, it's the destruction that it exacts. The judge burns up the chaff with unquenchable fire, Matthew 3.12. Three, the Greek word commonly rendered forever, I own and its cognates, probably, properly means age. And if in some contexts this age may be endless, why must we assume that this is the case in the passage describing hell? Why take the harshest view? Four, even in passages where the same word is used to describe both eternal life and eternal punishment in parallel. So Matthew 25, 46, right? Separation of the sheep and the goats, eternal life, eternal death. Um, Demanding, therefore, that the one lasts as long as the other. The eternality of the punishment need not be construed as consisting in self-conscious punishment. If the wicked suffer conscious pain for a period of time and then are annihilated without hope of reprieve or restoration their punishment can still rightly be called eternal, so they would argue. 
Five, surely an eternal hell full of conscious torment is irreconcilable with the Bible, what the Bible says about the love of God and even the justice of God. Um, assuming that we take what the Bible says seriously, surely any exegesis that avoids such blatant and eternal cruelty is to be preferred to the traditional view. This particular point of view, by the way, is held with uh, various degrees of passion. So someone like Clark Pinnock, he's Canadian. He, he died a few years ago, but he was a, he was a professor of systematic theology at McMaster. Um, he's also one of the granddaddies of open theism, um, but this is what Clark Pinnock writes. Let me, this is an evangelical quote-unquote, okay? Let me say at the outset that I consider the concept of hell as endless torment in body and mind, an outrageous doctrine, a theological and moral enormity, a bad doctrine of, of the tradition which needs to be changed. How can Christians possibly project a deity of such cruelty and vindictiveness whose ways include inflicting everlasting torture upon his creatures, however sinful they may have been. Surely a God who would do such a thing is more likely, nearly like Satan than like God, at least by any ordinary moral standards and by the gospel itself. Does the one who told us to love our enemies intend to wreak vengeance on his own enemies for all eternity? As H. Kung appropriately asks, why would we think of a human being who satisfied his thirst for revenge so implacably and insatiably? Everlasting torment is intolerable from a moral point of view because it makes God into a bloodthirsty monster who maintains an everlasting Auschwitz for victims whom he does not even allow to die. That's Clark Pinnock. By contrast, someone like John Stott, who like Pinnock, defends conditional immortality. He does so with much more caution. He's still dead wrong, but the, you hear a big difference in tone here, okay? I find the concept of eternal conscious punishment in hell, Stott says, intolerable. And I do not understand how people can live with it without either cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. But our emotions are a fluctuating, unreliable guide to truth and must not be exalted at the place of supreme authority in determining it. As a committed evangelical, my question must be and is not what does my heart tell me, but what does God's word say? Now, at the end of the day, he still comes out on the side of conditional mortality, but you see there's a big difference in his tone there, right? Along the same lines, this is just kind of more um, reasons why conditional immortality would be a good idea, they think. Along the same lines, number six, one must surely question whether the notion of an eternal hell of conscious torment is fair. No matter how grievous the offense, no matter how wretched the sinner, a Hitler perhaps, is eternal hell appropriate? searing pain that goes on for billions of years and then more billions of years and never stops because all of those billions of years are as a drop in the ocean. Seven, does not the notion of a continuing hell with conscious suffering, uh, uh, with, with conscious suffering inmates jar against the image of the new heaven and new earth, created to reflect God's glory and to extol his perfections? Would not an ongoing hell mar heaven? Got to stop it there. We're gonna, we are going to stop. I just left you on a cliffhanger, but I hope you what this does, guys. Because there's more. I, I'm not going to continue with this. Read that chapter in the PDF. I think that's just, it's good for your own souls to read it through, to actually have a, you want to come to a very clear conviction in your own understanding of, of hell and what the Bible says about it. Don Carson is a very good guide as he takes us through this because you're going to meet Christians, evangelicals, members of other churches in this city, um, people that we fellowship with, frankly, uh, who are conditional immortality, right? believe in this doctrine of conditional immortality. It, it's dead wrong. Um, so bone up on the theology, and I think that chapter can do it. So.
Um, let me just say, yeah, we'll just stop it there. Any questions? Okay. Just, just quickly, I think, I don't know if you came across this, I think it's Origin to come to this as well. I think I'm across that, yeah. Okay, yeah, don't, don't quote me on it. I think I remember in the city of Augustine basically saying, like, Origin had a lot of good stuff, but held to this and okay. kind of politely, like, yeah, right. 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 But that, as much as we respect them, kind of thing. Yeah. I think this is the topic. Mm. Just a random ecclesiological thing out there. Um, you you wouldn't be a member of this church if you held to conditional immortality. It's actually that's one of the things where we have in our statement of faith, where it's actually it's, it's eternal and it's conscious and it's torment. And uh, you you can still be a Christian and not believe that, believe in conditional immortality. John Stott's in heaven, I'm sure of that. But it's like actually no, this is what we're holding to at this church for, for membership. For membership, yeah. Okay. Actually, we actually had to, one of our excommunication, excommunication cases, like the week after we baptized somebody, he came back to me and said, I don't believe in hell. Yeah. That, was, that was one of our cases. Crazy. So, All right, guys, next week then, it's uh, New Heavens, New Earth, and that's the last of the uh, last things.